This message first aired on the radio on September 8, 2003. We've been studying the dispensations, and our purpose in studying dispensations is to help you enjoy the Scriptures. Now, enjoyment of the Scriptures is, is something God intends. In fact, God intends us to joy, enjoy himself, and the way that we become partakers or companions with him in the journey to him is that we have the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, or we have the promises of God by which we become companions or partakers of the divine nature. And so heaven and earth will pass away, but the Scriptures will not pass away, and it's what we have, and we're happy to be able to enjoy them. We know that the en- the whole world is in enmity against God and against our Lord Jesus Christ, but we have the Scriptures to hold us and to remind us of Him. And today we're going to take up, continue our study in the dispensation of law, and this is a very difficult dispensation to take up because it's so large beginning with the birth of the nation of Israel and continuing until the earthly ministry, really through the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ and Israel's consequent summary rejection of him, even as it continues through the book of Acts a bit. And so we could say that this dispensation begins with Exodus, it begins in the book of Exodus with the children of Israel coming out of Egypt at the Passover and ends with Maybe we could say Acts twenty-eight, twenty-eight, the very end of the book of Acts, where the Apostle Paul says, finally, for the third time, that God has now is now taking his word to the Gentiles, and certainly this period of time that we're in, the church, which is his body, becomes fully opened, and Israel, therefore, is set aside. But all that being said, contextualizing this dispensation, it's the fifth dispensation, that's interesting, because the dispensation of law, and yet five, the number of grace, because we see that despite the giving of the law, which was to Israel, and despite the fact that we call this the dispensation of law, we see that it is by grace through faith in every dispensation that a man believes. And we even see that it is by grace through faith in this period of time that we're studying right now that Israel is delivered. We're taking up the book of Judges, and In a summary way, we're in the period of time that is the Judges, and that includes the book of Judges and a good portion of 1 Samuel. After all, Samuel, a prophet and a judge. So we have the 12 Judges of the book of Judges. We have really a fourfold division of the history of Israel, we might say. We would say we have Moses and Joshua at the inauguration or the birth of Israel. And then we have the period of the Judges, where God sends along a string of deliverers. That's what judge means. Now, judge doesn't mean a presiding officer in a court. It means a deliverer or a savior. So maybe the book of saviors would be an appropriate title to this book also. But we have a string of 12 or 14 judges, depending on how you want to look at it. As long as you don't look at it as 13, I think you're going to be okay. And then we see that that's the period of development of Israel. It's really the period of of disdevelopment or a digression or devolution of Israel as they continue to fall in to the worship of the Gentile gods around them, and they continue to fail to take the land. And then comes the period of the kings, where we will see the zenith of Israel at the time of Solomon, but we will see the continual decline of Israel. And what marks the failure of Israel throughout this whole period, whether it's in their 
in their birth, in their development, in their adulthood, or even later in their captivity. What marks the, the characteristic of the children of Israel is that they are unfaithful. It is not that they don't do, it is that they don't believe. And that's their problem, and when they turn to God and when they believe God, then God delivers them, and one day all Israel will turn to God, and so all Israel will be saved, and that is at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we look in the book of Judges, we're a bit, okay, we might even say entertained. I don't like to, I don't like to use that word because of the, of the connotations of it, but our curiosity is aroused, our spirit is met, our mind is engaged, we begin to enjoy the wonderful way that it's laid out, the systematic repetition so that the points are brought home, that when Israel turns away from God, God delivers them into the hands of their enemies. In other words, they don't merely just fall into the hands, but God personally delivers them into the hands of their enemies, and then Israel comes into a very poor state uh, where they're deprived of their liberty, they're deprived of their substance, they're, they're even deprived in part uh, of their lives, and then they turn to God in their in their suffering, just as they will one day in the future, in the time of their great tribulation, they will turn to God, and God will deliver them and send them a deliverer. And so part of the enjoyment of this is the repetition of it. it when we see things repeated so many times, when we have repetitious phrases such as the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, or there was no king in Israel, or every man did what was right in his own sight. When we see these kind of repetitious things, it brings to us an emphasis, and it puts into our mind the way of remembering that this is the way to failure. And what is the way to success? It is not the keeping of the law that brings them back to their success, but it is the turning to God and the believing in God and trusting God as their Savior that rescues Israel. And you wonder why they don't remember. You wonder how they can forget so easily. Let me just say, let that meditation be about you. And you wonder how you forget so easily and how so quickly you set aside in your own mind the fact that God will is also your deliverer, that the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior. And by the way, the Lord Jesus Christ is Savior and he is the lord whether you believe it or not we do not i do not preach here that jesus christ is just my lord and savior and i don't say he is my lord and savior as if i possess or as if i've selected him out of some boutique window he is lord and savior of all and god commands everyone everywhere to believe in him you don't have any options he is the savior and he is the lord of all. He is the King of Kings. And so we have an objective reality in our Lord Jesus Christ and not some opinion by some soft-headed mushhead. If I were going to be a soft-headed mushhead, and con- or con- let me just say, if I was going to continue to be a soft-headed mushhead, then instead of receiving Christ as Savior when I was in the university, I'd have gone on to become a university professor and maybe even an ac- a great academic leader. I was foolish enough certainly to qualify. Well, now we look at Judges chapter 6, because we're going to take up, you remember, if you've been following the the uh, along in the study, that we're taking up as a characteristic of the period of Judges, the four men named in Hebrews chapter 11, and those four are in pairs, Gideon and Jephthah, 
and the other pair which we took up last time, certainly not adequately, but hopefully a bit effectively, or at least give you a wetter taste to go look and see if some of the observations we made were true, where we took up Barak and Samson. So we took up the the men with the women last time, and now we're going to take up a couple of men who have problems themselves. And uh, it's encouraging to see that God calls men with problems. And the first guy we want to take up today is a guy who maybe you'd consider him indecisive. Maybe you'd consider him to be a bit of a timid guy, an overly cautious guy. But we're going to take up the man Gideon, who the Scripture, remember, praises in Hebrews 11. And he's named there. And I would that I could be receive a testimony from God that my life pleased him as Gideon did, even as Barak, Samson, and Jephthah have. So we now go to Judges chapter 6. And for those of you who are trying to figure out the book of Judges as we go through, maybe you've, maybe you've taken to go read it, we hope so, you remember that we said sequentially the, the book of Judges uh, is not exactly written sequentially, that we think that very possibly chapters 17 through 21 are a covering of the time prior to Othniel uh, the time about the time of Joshua, right after Joshua, at the time of the first judge after Joshua, Othniel, the brother of Caleb. So, uh, otherwise than that, we have this sequential reading of the of the book of Judges, and so now we're in Judges chapter six, where we take up the life of Gideon, and we want to read a few verses here just to get the the wonderful flavor of the scripture. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. See, now, they didn't just fall into the hand of Midian. The Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian. So God positively became the discipliner of Israel. He put them under his discipline by placing them into the hand of their enemies. The Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, that every son whom God receives, he chastens or disciplines, including, especially even, you might say, his firstborn son Israel. And you'll remember that we, some time back, maybe, if you've been listening, we talked about the Gentiles and Israel and how the Gentiles mistreat Israel because the Gentile nations can notice that God is disciplining Israel and then they help forward the affliction. In fact, they just pile on as if... They act as if, for example, let's just say you were chastening your own son. Let's say you were spanking your son. Let's say you were giving your son a beating. And somebody came along and noticed and just decided they'd join in and give your son a real beating. On top of that, you're disciplining them, but they're just getting in there and fording the affliction, picking on your son. You might pop them one. You'd certainly do something if you're responsible to say, listen, I'll chasten my son because I love him. You're you're beating him because you hate him. It's a very different thing. Well, that's what the Gentiles do to Israel. So the Lord delivers them into the hand of their enemies, but their enemies now uh, go too far, and so God then comes alongside Israel when they turn to him, and he whoops up on Israel's enemies. Now, we have... He delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years, Judges 6.1. We read on, And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. 
So now here, this is for our anthropological friends. You, here we have cavemen. Now, I think we can all agree there are cavemen. It's just a matter of when they are. The first caveman that I notice is Lot. So Lot, the nephew of Abraham, is the first caveman. You may remember that when he retreated to Zoar, because it was too far to go to the mountains, he retreated to Zoar, that he then went to a cave. And that's where, well, that's where the children of Ammon and the children of Moab get their inception. So the first caveman was Lot, a believer. And now we see cavemen again. And this is in the day of Gideon. Here the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. So now don't go out and say that Christians don't believe in cavemen. We, we do. We just have a different time for them, and we know who they are. And so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up, that is, that they had, they had planted their crops, that the Midian, Midianites came up and the Amalekites, oh, yeah, the Amalekites always ready to join in and fight against Israel any time. And they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. For they came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude, for both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites." So you want to look here what happens. Now, this, this is, you can generalize off of this. First of all, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. You can, if you want to apply this, you can go, okay, I did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of their enemies for seven years. Now, who are your enemies? The world, the flesh, and the devil. You know, some people, <clears throat> some Christians, uh, love the world. It is possible for a Christian to love the world. In fact, it's even often and even likely that a Christian will love the world. Maybe you remember the Christian leader Demas, who was once a faithful brother, part of the apostolic company, and the apostle said, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. And so he went off into loving the world. Now, sometimes one of God's children will love the world and go off into it and do well in the world and think God is actually blessing him but in fact, God has delivered you over to one of your enemies. The world is one of your spiritual enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So you be careful, brother. You're doing well in the world, and you think God's blessing you. Maybe he has delivered you into the hands of your enemies so that they can now destroy you, and then you'll turn to God in your misery. Well, you don't have to wait for that. You can turn to God before that. I doubt that you will if you love the world but until you're destroyed. But if God has mercy on you, you will. And so the children of Israel now did evil, and the Lord delivered them. And, of course, they now live in caves. And this is also comparable to what happens to us when we live in the world. We live in the world. We love the world. We build our large house. We get our cars. We start our businesses. We get quite involved. And pretty soon we realize that we're in a very tight spot, that we're prisoners of our own so-called success. And in fact, you find out you're living in a cave. Now, when Israel sowed their crops, they tried to eke out a crop uh, operating out of the cave. As soon as, the, as soon as their enemies saw something growing, they said, well, we'll bring our animals in there. We don't, have to, we don't want to have to sow things. We'll just eat their growth. 
So they brought up them their sheep and their an uh, their their excuse me their cattle of whatever kind they were and their camels and they fl- uh, they they just completely dominated the landscape and they ate up everything that the children of Israel had and so they became impoverished. Children of Israel became impoverished. Now the problem that we have with the, with this is that we have to understand what real poverty is. Real poverty is being bankrupt of the Word of God, having no knowledge of the Word of God. We are so bankrupt as as a Christian people in our nation and our generation that we're so poor concerning the Scriptures that we don't even realize that we're so poor concerning the Scriptures. And what a horrible state that is to be in where we don't even realize our poverty. Well, the children of Israel at least came to realize their poverty and they turn to the Lord, and we'll see what happens to them when we come back when they finally do turn to the Lord. So we're back looking at the book of Judges. We're trying to understand the life of Gideon a bit, but first we have to understand the life of despair, the life of unbelief, the life of worldliness, which the children of Israel constantly turn to, and which we constantly turn to. And it is not until Israel was greatly impoverished, verse 6, Judges 6, that the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, and brought you forth out of the house of bondage, And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. You didn't pay attention. Now, here's the wonderful thing. The Lord, God is the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ is our Savior. We know that Jesus Christ in the New Testament is Jehovah in the Old Testament. We understand that now. But here, they have God displaying himself as the one who saves. He has told them, he is the one who saves. He has told them, I am the one who is becoming all that you need. And it's only when they're in their troubles that they turn to him. That's not necessary, by the way. It's not an obliging, they're not obliged to only turn to God when they have trouble. They could turn to God any time they wanted. They could turn to God in their prosperity. They could turn to God in their peace. They could turn to God in their rest, but they don't. They don't. Now let that be a lesson to us. We can turn to God in our rest. We can turn to God while we have peace. But when they turn to God, God comes to them this time in the way that he, and he always comes his way, he doesn't always bring a prophet, but he always brings his word to us. That's, when we turn to God, he brings to us his word to give us peace and to give us an answer. God always hears the cry of the sinner. God always hears your cry when you call to him. But will you call? God hears the cry of the sinner. You know, when God doesn't hear your cries, there's a reason inside you for it. 
For example, if you won't hear the cry of the poor and needy in your life, God will not hear you when you cry. If you are not getting answers to your prayers, it's because you're not getting along with your wife or your husband, or it's because you're not hearing the prayer of the of those around you who need you, and you are refusing them, or you are crying to God about something God doesn't want you to have because you want to consume it on your lust, or you're crying to God without repenting from the sins in which you are engaged. Now, the, the God tells the children of Israel, look, through a prophet, and God who at sundry times and times past spoke to the fathers, who in many times, in many ways, in times past spoke to the fathers, and these are the fathers, through the prophets, has in these last days already spoken to us in his Son. So when we see a prophet come to the children of Israel, the application here, the dispensational difference, don't you wait for a prophet to come. You just wait for the Word of God. The Word of God will come to you. In fact, here you are, the Word of God is coming to you. And the Lord says, I'm the one who saves you. You are now under the gods of the Amorites. You are under the hand of the Amorites, the, the particular form of Amorite here, or the Midianites and those fellows, the Amalekites, the old flesh that always joins in with sin. And that's that's you, yeah, that old sin nature. The Amalekites, a picture of that old sin nature, always joining in with your spiritual enemies. The two spiritual enemies, the world and the flesh, hate you, are against you, or the world and the devil, excuse me, hate you, they're against you. That old sin nature, the flesh, jumps right in and joins them, and you become your own worst enemy. Well, here, the children of Israel, now under fear, they now have the spirit of fear, where the Lord says, don't fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're dwelling, and yet they do. They're so fearful, they're living in caves, they're hiding themselves in rocks, they're afraid of the Amorites and the gods of the Amorites that the Amorites bow down to. And, of course, the reason that they're in fear is that they've brought themselves into the bondage of the Amorites. They joined up and they act just like the Amorites. And even though God does not give us the spirit of fear, we become fearful. Now, let me just say, whereas God doesn't give us the spirit of fear, it is foolish for you to think you don't have it. What is courage? Courage is not, being courageous and being faithful is not never having fear. It is standing up in faith against your fear. And we're going to see a guy do that. We're going to see a fellow here that has enough faith. And how much faith do you need? You just need enough faith to outmatch your fear. That's what you need. So the Lord says, fear not, just like the Lord Jesus Christ always says to us, fear not. Now, Judges 6.11, And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, not Oprah, Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash, the Abba Ezrite. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now, this is the way these guys have to live. Now, I've heard people criticize Gideon. In fact, I've heard way more criticism from preachers about Gideon than I ever read in the Scripture about Gideon. I don't read the kind of criticism preachers give. So, for example, here you see Gideon thresh wheat by the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Well, the, Midi the, the wine press is not a place to thresh wheat. It's not a place where you do it. You, the, 
the place to thresh wheat is the threshing floor where you can have a little room to do it, and the wine press is for grapes. Well, listen here, they're not going to have any wine. You might as well put that wine press to work some other way because there ain't going to be any grapes. You can barely have wheat. This is hand-to-mouth living here. And a wine press, whereas it might not make a good thresher, the best thresher, it's good enough, and at least you can hide the wheat down in it because a wine press is down in the ground. It's it's not in apparent sight. And so he's working secretly. And, of course, any time you have to work secretly, any time you have to work with your enemies oppressing you, you're not very productive. And, by the way, brother, does that remind you of anything? Do you find yourself unproductive spiritually? And do you wonder if it isn't because your enemies are oppressing you and because you can't get victory? And uh, do you think that that's none of your responsibility? Or are you going to be a little more reflective here as we read the Word of God? And so... The angel of the Lord, now this is Gideon, he's doing what he can. And I don't have any criticism of Gideon. Hey, listen, I would hide my work too if I knew my enemies were right there to steal everything I had and I couldn't feed my family. So those that say Gideon's a coward for threshing weed in the, by the wine press or in the wine press, as the, the case actually is, well, what would you do? Now the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said, The Lord is with you, thou mighty man of valor. I've actually heard somebody say that God has a sense of humor to call Gideon a mighty man of valor. Well, we don't have any figurative language here. We don't have any other structural figures that where this is sarcasm. This is not sarcasm whatsoever. This is no figure of speech. God looks upon the heart. Men look on the outward appearance. And you look on the outward appearance of Gideon hiding, threshing his wheat in a wine press, and maybe you think he's a coward, but God thinks he's a mighty man, a valor, very courageous. And it's a lot more courageous to thresh the wheat in the wine press than to hide in the cave. Courage is a relative value here. This man is courageous enough to do what a man must do. And those who are braver, where are they? Well, they're all bowing down to Baal and having fun with their Asherah and other wickedness. So here we do have a mighty man of courage. And let me tell you something, brother, sister, God looks upon your courage. He knows when you're standing up. And if men don't, it don't no matter. No matter about that. Don't worry about that. We are to show ourselves before God as approved, whether workmen in the Scripture or we want to be counted faithful by God. The praise of man is a snare. And if you're always looking for the praise of man, be careful. That might be all you ever get. And that's a pretty pathetic offering. But if we look to please God, if we look for the praise of God and not of men, then maybe God will surprise us when we're just barely getting by when we're just barely able to stand, when we're just barely able to do the basic necessities of life, but we're doing it by faith, maybe God will come to us and surprise us like he did, Gideon, thou mighty man of valor. And here's an interesting thing. God has a much higher esteem for Gideon than Gideon has for himself, and that's okay. And that's okay. You don't need to have a high opinion of yourself. You do not need a lot of self-esteem. That's a myth. That's baloney. You don't need that. It's being taught to you in the world. What you need is the approval of God. Gideon said unto him, verse 13, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why has all this befallen us? 
Where be all his miracles, which our father told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. So here we have him speaking to the angel of the Lord. Here he is speaking. Gideon doesn't realize he's speaking directly at this time to God himself. And he said, why is this going on? And the Lord looked upon him and said, notice the Lord answers him. The Lord looked upon him, verse 14, and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? And so what is the strength of Gideon? Well, Gideon can't find any strength in himself. He cannot find any confidence in himself. That's okay. God tells him, look, here's your strength. Here's your might. Here's your confidence. You go on the fact that I've sent you. You go on the fact that I have sent you. Now, let me tell you something, brother. You be sure you make the calling and election of God sure in your life. That's what this passage is about. This passage is not here. We're not here to criticize Gideon. We're here to learn from him. He received testimony from the Lord. He is called a mighty man of valor. He is recorded in Hebrews chapter 11. We want to see what made Gideon great. And do you want to know what made Gideon great? He made his calling and election sure, which every child of God is called to do. Do you know your calling, brother? Let me let me talk to it now. There may be listening. I know there are because I've heard from some of you preaching brothers out there that have enjoyed the program. I haven't heard from any of you that don't enjoy it, but I've heard from a few of you who've enjoyed the program. Do you know the call of God to preach? If you don't, quit it. Just stop. Let not many of you be teachers. The Scripture says don't let many of you, so you stop it. If you don't know the call of God, stop doing it. Go work for, go do an honest, work for a living anyway, by the way, whether you're called to preach or not, you should still be working for a living. It's good to bear the burden in your youth, and I go, I suppose that goes till you're past 50, at least so far, that's what I've learned. And let me say this, quit it if you don't know the call of God. Instead, make the call of God, calling and election of God sure first, so that you know that the grace of God is there for you when you need the grace of God. God will provide his grace for his purpose. He is not obliged to provide grace for you when you are not doing his will. You don't know the call of God? Uh, Preaching, brother, stop it. Do something else because you're just looking to torment yourself, your family, and destroy yourself. On the other hand, make your call. Say You say, well, I know that I'm called of God. Then make your calling and your calling out sure. Take the extra step. Well, look at Gideon. He does that. All manner of men criticize Gideon for what they say, fleecing God. Gideon's not going to fleece God whatsoever. I do not believe that Gideon doubts God at all. I think Gideon rightly doubts God himself. So now, here the, here the Lord tells the children of Israel, by the way of a prophet, he tells them, you remember that I'm the guy that delivered you out of Egypt. You turn away from your fear and your idolatry to the false gods of the Gentiles, and you revive yourselves, and you, get, you, get, you sort yourselves out. First he sends his word to him. Now he's raising up a deliverer. This is another deliverer. This is the great Gideon, a mighty man of valor. 
And I'm glad that such a guy as Gideon can become can be known as a mighty man of valor because it gives somebody like me real hope that I can please God because Gideon did what he could. Gideon stayed inside of his faith. Gideon won the Lord's approval. And so we'll skip now. Gideon wonders about it. He proves the Lord. He says, I need to see some miracle. And he brings out a, an offering. And the angel of the Lord brings fire out of the rock. And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, it tells us in verse 22, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said, And in peace be unto you, fear not, you will not die. And that is an amazing thing. You see, Gideon said, I've seen the face, I've seen an angel of the Lord face to face, and therefore I'm going to die because I'm an undone fellow, because I'm not worthy of this, because this takes me apart. And, of course, that's what happens when you see the Scriptures. It tells us in Second Corinthians chapter 3 that we all behold as in a glass the face of the Lord and are changed from glory to glory. And Gideon says, I'm undone here, more or less. That's the way he puts it. O Lord God, he says, in awe. And the Lord says, peace be unto you. And that's what the Lord says to his servants. Peace be unto you. Fear not. Fear not. Get over, Overcome your fears. Fear not. And, and by the way, you won't die. That's good news. So Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. And unto the, today it is yet in Ophrah of the Abba Ezrites. And it came to pass that night that the Lord said unto him, Take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old, throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath, and cut down the grove that is by it. Now we see the real problem in the children of Israel. And after this little song, we'll come back for some more. And now here, by the way, Gideon becomes really the savior of Israel, but a great encouragement to those around him by way of example. And when you say, when you read these passages and you say that Gideon is not a a heroic guy and that the Lord is somehow saying, by calling him a mighty man of valor, that he's mocking him or that he's being sarcastic. And God is able to be sarcastic. He certainly does that. And his prophets also, wonderful sarcasm. Elijah, a great sarcastic guy. Micaiah, wonderfully sarcastic in the time, in the days of Ahab. But the Lord's not sarcastic. He's serious about a man named Gideon. And Gideon is a serious brother, even though he's a hesitant guy. And even though he lacks confidence in himself. And so, brother, if you lack confidence in yourself, don't you worry about that. Don't go take some class. Don't try to work on your self-confidence. You wait for the Lord to give you his word. And by the way, when you're weak, then you're strong. And when you're strong, then you're weak. So here his lack of confidence becomes a great blessing to him. And he just now does what God says. The Lord says, take a young bullock. Throw down the altar of Baal that your father has. Cut down the grove that is by it. And there we see the worship, that horrible worship with the Asherah, that horrible, the children of Israel in deep sexual sin around their religion. And by the way, all religion 
will bring you into sexual sin. There's no doubt about that. Religion will bring you into sexual sin. Faith will take you out of it. Faith in Christ will make you a useful person. Then he tells him, and build an altar unto the Lord. Don't just knock down the don't just be an iconoclast. Don't merely knock down the idolatry that's around you, but build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place and the second bullock, and take the second bullet and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove which thou shalt cut down. And so he cuts down the Asherah, which is a wooden image. It's a wooden phallic image, by the way. And he now takes that, and it's used as fire to burn the sacrifice to God. And this is a picture, of course, of what God is going to do through Gideon. He's going to take the he's going to take the idolatry of Israel and turn it into his own glory by delivering them from it. Then Gideon took verse. Uh, now we're in uh, Judges six twenty-seven. Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had said unto him. So we know that you know ten other guys know what he did. And so it was because he feared his father's household and the men of the city that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. And there are those now who would contrast Gideon to Elijah the Tishbite, who went out in front of 450 false prophets and the king of Israel and all Israel and made an open show of his, which, which God also told him to do. But God does not criticize Gideon for taking ten men and doing this at night. He does what he can. He does what he can do. He does what faith allows him to do. And that's the point I want to make here. I want to make a point that despite the fact that Gideon is fearful, yet he is faithful. So the spirit of fear that he has does not come from the Lord. It's not as if God brought that fear upon him, but he has it. You see, he has fear, but he has his faith to overcome his fear. And that is what a courageous person is. That is what a faithful man is. And so he's now a faithful man because his faith is in the face of his fear. Oh, I would would that we could just get a hold of that because God does not require us to be great people. He requires us to be people of faith inside of our own selves. Well, when the men of the city arose early in the morning, verse 28... Behold, the altar of Baal was cast down, and the grove, the Asherah, was cut down that was by it, and the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And they said one to another, Who did this? And when they inquired and asked, somebody, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said unto Joash, his father, Bring out thy son that he may die, because he has cast down the altar of Baal, and because he has cast cut down the grove that was by it. So here are these people. Look at these guys. These guys are ready to kill their brother. They hate their brother for being faithful. This is how unfaithful they are. And, well, that's just the way it is. That's just the way it is when these men are unfaithful, when they've turned into idolatry. That's just the kind of characters they are, even though they're under great oppression. And Joash, Gideon's father, said unto all that stood against him, Why will you plead for Baal? Let Baal plead for himself. That's a good... Okay, Joash now is also doing what he can do, I suppose. I don't think very much of this guy. After all, he's the guy that has the the, the, altar, to, the, the altar to Baal, and he's the guy that has the Asher in his property, and he's been unfaithful. But at least here he says, Well, if Baal... If the, 
if if God is Baal, if Baal's a god, he can handle himself. We don't need to deal with my son. Let Baal deal with my son. And then, of course, Baal, it says, he says, let Baal plead against him because he has thrown down his altar. And therefore, Gideon is named Jeriabal, which is Baal can, Baal can judge him. Let Baal, let Baal file a lawsuit against this guy. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of east of the east were gathered together and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. Well, I'm I'm taking a long time here to lay this out because because I like this guy. That's why I'm doing it. I like Gideon. Maybe maybe I feel like him a lot or today, but I just really appreciate this faithfulness here and I think that I see here a man of God because the word of God says so. So now the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, and Abiezer was gathered after him. So the spirit of the Lord now comes upon Gideon, and this is what this is what we find that God does when God has a task for us to do. His spirit comes upon us to enable us to complete the task in the way that God wants us to do it. Now the here, the Spirit of the Lord was upon Gideon. He blew a trumpet. People began to follow him. He's beginning to be the deliverer. He's already delivered his local people from the their false religious system here. And now Gideon goes into this famous fleece, hmm? this famous fleece, where he says to God, Gideon says to God, If thou wilt save Israel by my hand, as thou hast said, behold, I'll put a fleece of wool in the floor. And if the dew be on the fleece only and dry on the earth, then I'll know that thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. And I've made an emphasis in reading this of the two times he says, by my hand. Because I don't think for one minute, really, I don't see here that Gideon doubts that the Lord will deliver Israel. The question he's, the thing he wants to make certain of is, will you deliver Israel by my hand? I'm not totally sure I'm the one. Are you sure I'm the one? And he's waiting for God to confirm that he is the one. He's slow to put himself forward as the deliverer of Israel because he lacks confidence in himself, and rightly he should. And even when God answers him by making the fleece wet and the earth dry, Gideon now asks him to reconfirm it, that by two or three witnesses every word would be established, and leave the dew out of the fleece and have it wet on the ground next to it. And when he does that, it tells us in verse 40, And God did so that night, for it was dry upon the fleece only, and there was dew on all the ground. Then Jerubbaal, who is Gideon, and all the people with him rose up early, and now Gideon goes forward to deliver Israel. And I hope that in the consideration of Gideon that we've had today, that we learn what it's like to be a man or a woman of faith, to be a man or a woman of faith. Remember that God commends what men condemn. And men have plenty of things to say. You can hear it if you'll pay attention. If you hear much preaching, you'll hear men have plenty of things to say about Gideon and about how timid he is. But remember, he's the one that's called the mighty man of valor. He's the one that delivered Israel. And, of course, God delivers Israel through the leadership of Gideon. And we won't go into the details of how he does that. But God now takes Israel, who has a lot of self-confidence, and he makes sure that he delivers 
Israel by only a few men so that they will realize that it's not in their own strength, but in the strength of God that they are delivered. And is that perfectly the way? Is Gideon the perfect Savior for Israel at this time? Is he the perfect one? Yes, he is. He's the one that God chose. Even in all of his personality and all of his experience, he was custom-built for the job that God had him to do. And brother or sister, so are you custom-built for the job God has you to do. Well, let's just listen to a nice hymn, and may God bless you uh, until tomorrow.